1: Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Helen. I'm Mel. And I'm Vivian, your rich BFF.
0: Hello ABGs and ABBs, today's guest is a viral sensation who works to help democratize financial literacy through her approachable, easy-to-digest videos on TikTok and Instagram, and help people make informed decisions about their money. Known as your rich BFF, great branding by the way, (laughs) Vivian Too is the internet's financially savvy, straightforward, and trustworthy friend.
1: After graduating from the University of Chicago, Vivian spent two and a half years on Wall Street trading equities at J.P. Morgan. Then she switched to tech media at BuzzFeed. Once word got around of her financially savvy background, the questions started pouring in from colleagues and others seeking financial advice they could trust. Vivian's first You're Rich BFF video went up during the early pandemic days of 2021, and she became an overnight Finfluencer sensation, with her first video leading to 100,000 followers. Since then, she's posted new content almost every day. As of this interview, Vivian's helpful advice has earned her 1.6 million followers on TikTok and 636 hundred thousand followers on Instagram.
3: Join us as we chat with this ex-Wall Streeter about the importance of financial literacy, the challenges and benefits of growing a small business while also working a full-time corporate job, and why personal finance is not one size fits all. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Vivian!
2: Thanks guys, so excited to be here!
0: Thanks so much for being here. I mean, Vivian, you literally blew up over the past year, and you're still growing so much and so fast, and we'll get into all of that in a bit, but before we do, we always like to learn a little bit more about our guests that come onto this show. Even though we are all Asian here on the pod right now, <laughs> each of us have such unique upbringings, and we would love to hear a bit about yours. Um, can you share with our listeners where you grew up, and also, what are a few words you'd use to describe describe young Vivian. (laughs)
2: Um, Yes, so I grew up in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, My family is Chinese. My parents immigrated in their early 20s, and I was born here in the U.S. Uh, Early Vivian was, I can only think of one word, and it was a troublemaker. Mm. I was always getting in trouble. Um, I was very, very headstrong, just like a fiery little kid, and Uh, I I, that got me into a lot of trouble, honestly. But uh, I was very, very interested in reading, learning, constantly curious. And I was just one of those kids that wouldn't shut up. I would always be asking questions and chatting with my parents like I was this tiny little adult. Uh, But that is... My upbringing. I could kind of see through like your videos how your personality it
3: like people would say like you're very like a troublemaker but I feel like you're very just strong and like very proactive <laughs> in the way you come off in your videos. Um, you kind of mentioned that you talk to your parents a lot you know having conversations and asking questions. Do you remember your first lesson about money?
2: Yeah so I think this is probably a lesson that all of us in the room share. Uh, mm-hmm. Being Chinese immigrants my parents have always really really valued saving um, I remember watching my mom wash Ziploc bags and Tupperwares growing up, and uh, watching my parents say things like, "I, I, the exact, the exact translation would be, you can, o- you should only spend money on the knife's edge, meaning you should only spend money when it's really, really important, and that was the first value instilled in me, in that saving is." A priority. It's not something that we do after the fact, after we pay our bills. It's the thing we do first. So when you get paid, set aside something for your little rainy day fund and then think about everything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Most definitely the three of us are nodding our heads and I'm sure a lot of listeners as well. Um, that kind of immigrant um, family upbringing of prioritizing saving over anything else. Um, so it's wonderful to hear that that was the story that you grew up with as well. So Vivian, We'd like to learn a little bit more about how you got to where you are today in your career. Obviously, you've done some amazing things, uh, setting the context. You're working on Wall Street, and then you move over to BuzzFeed. And in the midst of this corporate job and in the midst of the pandemic... You start Your Rich BFF. How and, and why did this begin? Walk us through that story.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I want to tell you guys this amazing story about how I planned Your Rich BFF, but that's not at all what happened. Uh, when I got to my BuzzFeed job, all of my new colleagues and friends were like, oh, <gasps> You came from wall street can you rebalance my 401k like which health insurance did you pick what should i be investing in should i buy the company stock options Mm -hmm. asking all of these questions that i got really really sick of answering because i got asked Mm -hmm. so many times and i would always say like haha i'm gonna start a personal finance social media channel and you can just direct all your questions there but i never really got around to it until the pandemic hit work had slowed down just a bit and i was like oh well you know, I'm seeing some really horrible stuff going around on social media, whether that's take your stimulus check and YOLO it into Bitcoin or YOLO it into Tesla calls and just horrible, horrible investment advice. And I created a video really for my friends. And I was like, oh wow, this will be really good. I'm gonna make a TikTok. I'm a little too old for this platform, but my seven friends are gonna watch this. They're gonna cheer me on. It's gonna be great. I make this video saying these things and saying, I've seen some stuff going around the internet that's terrible. I don't have any get-rich-quick schemes, but if you actually want to learn how to grow your wealth, this is my pedigree. These are why I'm accredited. This is why it makes sense to listen to me. I can teach you how to do this. And by the end of the first week, I had 100,000 followers and a little bit of like a, oh, shoot, moment when I realized I was going to have to start creating content, like a lot more content um, than I had initially planned for. Did it help that you were at BuzzFeed, that you
0: had this more like creative mindset because you were at a company like BuzzFeed, who, which is a video creation company.
2: Yeah, I, would, I always joke that like, me creating Your Rich BFF was destiny, right? It blended mm-hmm. my first two jobs. First and foremost, I have this Wall Street background. I've always had a passion about personal finance. But secondly, having worked at BuzzFeed, I had become so much more in tune with the internet. I felt mm-hmm. like I had a deep understanding of how social media platforms worked and what content really appealed to people and what types of audiences were watching what. And I think that has really, really given me a leg up in terms of content creation Mm -hmm. throughout my time as Your Rich BFF. When you first started Your Rich BFF, was it also in the same format of the videos that you're
0: doing now? Um, I feel like that form where it's, um, I forget what it's called. I think there's a term for it where you're kind of like talking to yourself, but it's a different character. mm. I feel like that sort of content has like picked up more recently, but you are one of the first ones to be doing that too. It's like, where did you get the inspiration to- to do that type of, that form of content.
2: Yeah, I think TikTok is something that's so fun, right? Because every video gives me analytics to then iterate upon for the next piece of content. I felt like that conversational format between the two Vivians was really fun because. Mm-hmm certain concepts are easily more easily explained through questions versus giving a bird's eye view of how things work. Whereas I also find that the face to camera uh, format where I tell people about like a secret hack or like a concept that they didn't know also works really well. But at the end of the day, my goal is to just give information to people that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get because unfortunately financial services has largely catered to rich, older mm-hmm. white men in the past. And mm-hmm. they're having these financial conversations on golf courses. And if you're not that demographic, you're not rich, you're not old, you're not a white man, you're not having these conversations. And suddenly, I think people saw on the internet, they looked at me and they were like, huh, that girl looks like they she could be anybody's bestie from college and mm-hmm. she looks like me. And it gave them a sense of like, oh, well, if she figured it out, I guess I can too.
0: Mm. So when you started your Rich BFF, this was initially for your close friends and your coworkers. Yeah. Did you have any idea who your audience would become? I guess now a year later, who do you hope your content will reach and why?
2: Yes, my audience, my initial seven person audience <laughs> is still really representative of my now much, much larger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's primarily people who I have lovingly dubbed the leftovers. To that point, of old, rich, white guys getting this education, women are being left behind. People of color are being left behind. The LGBTQ community is being left behind. And marginalized groups like low income young people are being left behind. They're not getting this education. We don't teach this in public school. Like, everybody knows that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but like, why can't somebody teach me how to do my taxes correctly. Mm-hmm. So even though the audience has grown quite a bit, I think that initial seven person subset was a microcosm of who I hope to still speak to now and in the future.
3: I totally agree with that because I think even when you were saying like, I originally made the videos because I got so many questions about how to do all this. I was like, yeah, I would have been that annoying coworker. It's like, hey, Vivian, <laughs> I don't know any of this stuff either because I feel like even when you're telling you know your story about like, I think as a like as an child of an immigrant, like you're taught to save money, but mm-hmm. I think sometimes our parents are like, I don't want to say my mom does, but like you save money, but like keeping cash underneath your mattress or things like mm-hmm. these little like these things you kind of learn from their like upbringing. But you're like, well, no, we live in. We live in a very different era now where, like, there's different, like, different um, tools to save or, like, ways to, like, invest. But then I think even those type of ideas or tools were never taught to me from my parents because they didn't know how to do that. And so when I landed on your content, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm finally being taught something I never was, like, told. Like, even in college, like, the classes you, you take, you're like why did anyone teach me how to like actually properly save money? Yeah. You know, so I really appreciate your content. I feel like you're such a good expert, you know, and I do want to actually more dive now into like questions about money. Cause yeah, you know, since you're an expert, I feel like <laughs> you might as well dig deeper for you. How are the money challenges of today's generation different from past generations?
2: Yeah. I think the economy, capitalism, all of these big, big concepts used to work. That's why we followed them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you worked hard, you got that good education, you would be able to find a job that would then be able to afford you that two and a half kids white picket house, like white picket fence house, you get your golden retriever, your happy nuclear family, you get to go on two vacations a year and everybody gets a present at Christmas. But our generation is so disenfranchised because that was the lie we were peddled, and. When we went to school, some of us picked up hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt, now realizing that many of these jobs aren't going to cover the debt that we took on to pay them off. On top of that, having that massive student loan crisis, housing is more and more and more expensive every single day. I think a a few of you guys live in California, right? Like That is a perfect example of Mm -hmm. how the cost of living and the real estate market has grossly outpaced- wages. Um, In the past 60 to 80 or so years, housing has increased by like 115%, but wages have only increased by 18%. -hmm. So what are we doing with that gap? Because people still need to live, people still need to buy food, and people still need to put a roof over their heads. So I think a lot of us are feeling really, really frustrated. And to make matters worse, we all now have social media. Mm -hmm. I call it the Instagramification of society. Before, when rich people were celebrating on their private jets and eating caviar and going on vacations and buying Birkin bags, you knew about it as an abstract concept, right? There are rich people in the world. But now it feels like every single one of your friends can afford to do that. So you now feel like you should be able to afford to do that. So people are taking on extra credit card debt to go on those trips that they can't afford. They are buying things that they don't necessarily want or need to impress people that they don't like. And it's, it's very tough because we are now in a constant state of keeping up with the Joneses and the Joneses are no longer just our neighbors, but they're pretty much anybody on the internet. Mm
3: yeah that's a really no that's that's really true I think that I saw your recent video talking about that too and I was like yeah I totally relate to this (laughs) (laughs) would you say that Vivian like how did you like I'm sure like you probably do your own research but do you how do you know about this stuff is it just I'm just curious like do you like are you like keeping up with like I don't know just as someone who's not as financially savvy and just as a content creator ourselves like How do you know to address these type of topics in your rich BFF videos?
2: Yeah. So one, I am a pretty voracious reader, less so like books, but more like I love reading the news. I find it so Mm -hmm. interesting. I have like Google alerts set for anything, money, finance, like news related. I think it's really interesting. I love to read about it. And then even more importantly, again, I say I make content for my friends. My friends will DM me stuff and they're like, you need to talk about this because my boss just blah, 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 blah. And then I make a piece of content and I'm like, wow, I guess like more than one boss was doing this or like more (laughs) than one person's trying to buy a home right now or more, more than one person wants to save for retirement. And I truly do mean it. Like I would say 85 to 90% of my content is curated because of questions I get from my
1: audience. That is the definite, like, beautiful thing about social media. As you've shared, there's a yeah. lot of negative aspects to it, but the great thing is that you get a direct connection in line to what people are looking for. Um, and people ask me all the time, they're
2: like, you put out a video every day. Do you ever just, like, run out of content? And I'm like, how can I possibly run out of content when every single video I post gets hundreds, if not thousands, of mm. questions? Mm. There are always going to be more topics to talk right, about. Right, right,
1: Yes. That's true. Incredibly good point. Um, So Vivian, you walked us through an amazing analysis of kind of the state of um, how our generation grew up uh, and the financial situations that we've faced. As a member of that generation and as someone who's a finance specialist now, I'm sure all of our listeners are wondering, when it comes to managing personal finances, what are some guiding principles that you use for your own personal finance?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think... I'd love to give you guys like my method. Yeah. So I always joke about this because people are like, what's the best way to be really rich? And I'm like, you should strip. And people are like, okay. <laughs> um, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, hear me out. It's an acronym. Only fans account. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> Only fans account. Um, but you should strip. S being savings. I think it's really important for everybody to have three to six months of living expenses in a high yield savings account as an emergency fund, like a true emergency fund. Your house breaks down, your dog gets sick, you, uh, a pipe above your ceiling leaks, something bad happens to you, you go to the hospital, whatever. Like you need that money to be set aside first and foremost because if you have debt, if you have money problems, if one more bad thing happens, you are going to be in a worse situation if you don't have that. Two, I recommend paying down any high interest rate debt First and foremost, you want to get that out of the way. This is largely credit card debt. High interest rate debt is, in my mind, at least, is anything above seven percent interest. Federal student loans are closer to probably two to four percent, so not in that category. Uh, mortgage rates in the past, I would say, probably a few years, have been anywhere between two to six percent. So again, not in that category. Um, but like truly credit cards, those interest rates are like twenty to twenty five percent. They compound so fast and are so furious, and it is very, very easy to snowball credit card debt. So you wanna get that out of the way. Once that's out of the way, you gotta think about investing. First and foremost are being retirement accounts because they're tax advantaged. Everybody loves avoiding paying taxes legally. So make sure you're taking advantage of things like a 401k, a Roth IRA, an IRA, um, even a health savings account Which may be offered from your employer if you have a high deductible health plan these are all ways that you can shield money from the government completely legally and invest for your future in addition to that i obviously stands for invest you are going to buy investments in those accounts being things such as etfs or mutual funds that track the broader stock market um, maybe some Series i bonds if you want to try and keep up with inflation i even dabble a little bit in crypto i try to keep crypto a one to three percent percentage of my portfolio so not a very big amount at all um and then you know investing in yourself do you have hobbies you want to pursue do you have things that you want to put money towards whether that is a side hustle a photography business a podcast um and then p last but not least is plan you do not get to hit your goals unless you put them into the world, you write them down, you make a plan on how you're going to reach them. And that is my holistic method. I think that works for everybody.
0: Awesome. I think we need to capture that audio and put it all over <laughs> socials. That was great. Those are great tips that you just shared. Say someone tuning into this podcast is just a complete, complete finance noob what are the top three tips that you would give someone who might not be as financially savvy as say you because those are your guiding principles Mm -hmm. that would be good for someone who might be a little bit more financially savvy but say someone tuning in has no idea where to even like start what are the top three tips you would give to someone like that to take their finances more seriously
2: yeah first and foremost um make things easy Automate everything. Go to your employer's work portal, whatever. Most people get paid via direct deposit these days. No one's really getting paper stubs mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so in your direct deposit, they're gonna say, which account do you want this to go to? And many, many employers offer the option to split it. Instead of even letting all of that money hit your checking account, put some of it into a savings account right away. Automation is your friend. Put your credit card on auto pay, Put your bills on auto pay. That way you never miss. That way you get to build strong credit by being on time. Automation is your friend. That's one. Two, you are not graded in the financial world by how much money you have. You are graded on how well you play the game. Mm -hmm. Credit scores were invented in 1989. You know what else was invented right around there? Me. (laughs) So I think it's really, really important to acknowledge that this is not some centuries old thing a credit score was literally made 30 years ago and so it's really really important to acknowledge that you need to learn how to play the game by the rules so mm-hmm. it's important to open a credit card it is important to build your credit to pay on time to not really use that credit card that much to keep your utilization below 30 percent, and ideally below 10 percent. it's important to have you know, diversified loans, if you have them, uh, different types, it's, you just got to play by the rules. So play by the rules is number two. Mm -hmm. And then three, and this is something that may be a little contentious, but I think it's surround yourself with people who are better, smarter, and richer than you are, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you are a representation of your five closest friends. Mm -hmm. And That is true in terms of net worth as well. And I'm not saying like go and unfriend anybody who makes less money than you, but I am saying if you are interested in becoming better financially, surround yourself with people who have good financial habits. Mm -hmm. If you are surrounding yourself with people who are YOLOing all of their money, don't have a dollar to show for at the end of the month, you will be that too, because you will feel compelled to do exactly what they're doing. Surround yourself with people who are going to challenge you to build for the future. So three, pick good friends.
3: These are great advice. I'm noting (laughs) all
2: this mentally. I'm going to replay this episode so many
3: times. (laughs) I think when you even said, this is so random, but when you're saying like, yeah, the credit score thing, like the play by the rules, it reminds me how like the credit score really is important because like, I'm pretty sure none, none of us are on the dating apps anymore. Maybe I don't know if you're not on the dating apps, but like, I remember seeing like guys will screenshot their credit score on their dating app (laughs) and be like,
1: to show like,
3: (laughs) to be like, look, I'm that true. Like Janet, you
0: know yeah, what yeah. Mel's talking if about. If not a screenshot, I've also seen oh within their profile,
1: they'll say, like, you know, X, they'll give their g- credit score as a way to be like, look how attractive I am. How yeah. Desirable.
2: It's <laughs> crazy. Good. Like, show me your mm. 800 credit yeah, score. Yeah, yeah. I am attracted. Yeah, this guy had a
3: 720. <laughs> I, I think that's
2: pretty
3: good still. So, so I was like, oh, okay. So when you said that, I was like, yeah, people know are knowing how to play by the rules and like sharing on on the yeah. dating apps now.
0: Um, also, you have to make sure those are, um, those are credit scores and not SAT scores. No? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A a- age difference. I'm pretty sure because it, it
3: has like the meter ball. Yeah. I don't know. No. My age might, come on. You said the age range. You know what you're doing. <laughs> Vivian, um, I have a question for you now that we're talking about this too. But okay, so as someone, aka me, <laughs> who is finally looking at saving up money to possibly own property, mm-hmm. like your eye and strip, and I'm hearing a lot of different things about the housing market. You know, like, yep. I don't even know when is like the quote unquote right time to own a home. Like, what are some things that maybe you're considering or you, you advise your friends on? And because um, I'm also hearing that like, I, again, I will say, like, what you mentioned before, I am very influenced about, you know, like, on social media. I'm getting, like, fed, like, so many housing videos. I'm just like, ooh, this is nice. And, like, yeah. yeah it, it kind of it's influencing, like, you know, what's my next financial decision. But I'm also hearing that, like, buying a home and th- I'm hearing that a lot of people I know are actually buying homes and barely saving money every month. So just, like, I feel I hear I'm, I'm hearing all these different things about home buying. So just love to hear your opinion and your advice on that.
2: Yeah. So this people have a very, very strong view about buying homes because I would say probably in the past 20 years or so, buying a home was a really, really great way to build wealth because of Mm -hmm. all of the price appreciation that happened with the exception of like, you know, 08. But during that time period since, since 08, in the past, what is it, 14 years? God, Mm -hmm. my basic mental math needs a little work. Um, Past 14 years, like, Prices have only gone up. So anybody who bought in 09, like in 2010, they look like a genius. But I think there's a lot of people swirling right now, like, should I buy a home? You know, interest rates are a little bit higher. Can I afford it? And what people don't realize is that as interest rates rise, even if housing prices go down, you'll still have a monthly payment That is as expensive, if not more expensive, than if you were to pay a little bit more for the home but have your rate be a little bit lower. So there is no perfect time to buy a home. Interest rates are likely only going to get higher. So if you have decided to buy a home, now is not a bad time. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to wait, that is also okay. I think the only mistake that I really see people make when it comes to buying a home is that they get over their skis and they're like, "Ah, oh yes, this home, I really like it and they buy it versus am I actually gonna be at this property for at least seven years? Because if not, the closing costs aren't worth it. Like the hard friction fee, like the, there's gonna be too many friction costs, the hard flat fees are all gonna be really, really expensive. Two, is it like, is this my forever home? or is this something that i only see myself living in for the next 10 years? because if so, that'll determine what type of mortgage you should get. and again, with that like that will change what your monthly payment looks like. and then i go i just would say last but not least, like don't let the pressure to be a homeowner push you into a decision you're not ready to make. Mm-hmm. i think historically a lot of people's first home purchase was the home that they lived in. these days not necessarily so much. i know Many people now who rent their primary residence and have purchased investment real estate outside of where they live. I live in New York. Obviously, buying a home here is very, very expensive. So I know people who live and rent in New York and they're happy to pay rent and they will buy in a, I would say, like lower density, probably like a second tier density city because things are cheaper and they can then buy an investment property, rent it out, and have cash flow every single month and build wealth in the same way that they would with a primary residence. But they don't have to do it exactly where they're living. Mm
1: -hmm. That is a great walkthrough of kind of thinking about like the ways um, or the different circumstances in which someone would purchase property and Very good tips. Yeah. And I think especially um among, you know, Asian American culture Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. maybe just immigrant families, like you're saying, because of the generation and the time, owning a home was such a reflection of like financial security. Yeah. But to your point, we need to think about what is the context that our parents grew up in and what is the context of the economy and the society that we grow up in now. I think our parents
2: also were very much and and I don't wanna speak for you guys because I don't know, but I'm first gen and my parents definitely lived their lives through a veil or like a lens of survival, Mm -hmm. of making it when they bought their home. I think they must have taken like a deep breath and been like, we have finally done it. We have hit the American dream. Like Mm this is, this is it. We will never be happier, more successful than we are now. For me, I was born here. I have a sense of entitlement of I belong here. I am an American. My parents were always treading lightly around people being like, oh, like we don't want people to call us outsiders or like hate on us or whatever. Like I am not going to put up with that. I deserve to be here just as much as anybody else. And for me, having financial security and being able to own my home is part of me feeling like I helped fulfill that dream for them. Mm. They bought a you know, nice home. It's a, you know, it's a single family home. They really felt like they made it. But for me, I bought a condo in New York city and this is not my forever home. And my feeling about property as it pertains to like my wealth is it's a tool in the same way that a savings account is a tool in the same way that my investments are a tool and owning property is not going to be the end all be all of whether or not I've made Mm. it.
1: Yeah. That is a, um, looking at it as only one piece of the pie. Um, which is it, So you kind of mentioned about people purchasing property as a form of investment. Um, when it comes to investing, one of the kind of basic principles that I think um, that I heard from my parents growing up was that it's important to diversify your investments, right? So you talked about yeah. kind of savings accounts and property and all that kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to create a scenario now that I think probably a lot of our listeners would fall under. So say um, you are somebody who probably is well within your 30s. You've been working for many years at a corporate job. You have been contributing to your 401k and your IRS. You have retirement savings that you've been putting away. Um, Say you've already purchased your your first home, maybe a condo, you own property. Um, You maybe also have some basic stock accounts that you've started to invest in. Um, And then you also have, you know, your high yield savings account. What would you say for this individual? They're kind of already doing the right things. Mm -hmm. What's the next thing that they should be thinking about in terms of a financial goal to not only preserve their wealth, but to grow it?
2: I think once you get to that point where you're doing all of the right things, in addition to that, it's making sure that you're not just doing them, but trying to max them out. So taking full advantage of that 401k, the IRA or Roth IRA, because those have limits that you can contribute to each year. I think right now the 401k is like a 22,000 max. Don't quote me on that. And the Roth IRA or IRA is like a 6,000 a year max. So make sure you're maxing those out. But in addition to that, also diversifying the investments within those accounts. So once you've already put a good deal of money into ETFs and mutual funds that track a broader index, what sectors are you interested in? Is it technology? Is it biomedical, real estate? You can buy ETFs that cover those sectors. So if you have a view and think this is something that's really gonna pop in the next 10 years, you can invest in that as well. And then I think it's also important to have the conversation of tax planning. Mm. Um, This isn't something that my parents ever really thought about. They they do invest, but I will probably be the first person in my family tree who has to set up a trust for their kids because I'm probably going to be the first person who's going to be worried about the amount of taxes my child will be responsible for Mm. in terms of paying for what I leave them. I am also probably the first person in my entire family who's going to get a prenup. Mm. I'm also the first person who, you know, feels like they need to have a living will and testament while I'm in my 20s. I think having these planning conversations, these tax preparation conversations of how can I save on taxes? How can I set up a business properly so that I'm able to write off all of my ex- like my business expenses and make sure that I'm taking full advantage of what the tax code has to offer. This is something that I'm willing to pay an accountant to do. And I think, unfortunately, my Chinese parents have always felt very mistrusting Mm. or distrustful of financial professionals because I think immigrant parents often feel like they're just a moment away from being swindled, Mm. whereas Mm. I'm going out and finding licensed CPAs who can help me with what I need. Mm. I feel like that is very good
0: advice because i would agree my parents are the exact same um for them it's like you gotta save into your either your bank account or even like cash sometimes because yeah. they don't trust the system that they banks. love and cash like, oh. yeah i'm like what is this uh, a box of cash here where'd you get it from <laughs> it's just like it's built over time but i'm like this is not this is like the worst way to build your yeah. wealth you know yep um I guess I also want to ask another question, and this is more for for myself and for all the new parents out there. Um, and I feel like you probably touched upon this a little bit with, you know, setting up a trust and, you know, th- those are things that I, I actually have not thought about. But they say that once you hit a life milestone, you should always revisit your finances.
3: Yep.
0: I'm curious, what are the top three financial decisions to consider when starting a family?
2: Yeah, 100%. I think first and foremost, if we're going to talk real logistics, health insurance. Right now, Mm -hmm. I have a high deductible health plan because I am in my late 20s. I'm young. I'm sprightly. I go to the doctor once a year just to make sure everything's good to go. And that's about it. Whereas if I'm thinking about starting a family, you know what's really expensive? Having a baby. You know what's really expensive? Mm -hmm. Like getting an ultrasound, getting multiple ultrasounds, talking to a fertility doctor, constantly going to your OBGYN, that's not all covered. And a high deductible health plan is not going to make sense for you. So before starting a family, I would say, you probably wanna get on the PPO if that's what your company offers, because yes, you'll pay a higher premium each month, but you'll have less out-of-pocket costs afterwards. Two, I am a huge fan of setting up kiddos ahead of time. So a lot of states offer five to nine accounts where you'll receive state tax benefits. And the best part that people don't realize is that you can open one before your kiddo is born. You just put yourself as the beneficiary. So you can put money into this account for your education. And then once they're born, you can literally just transfer it over into their name. So that's really, really wonderful. And then in addition to that, like with thinking about your child you want to be sure that if you do work in a corporate work environment that you are taking full advantage of the benefits you might be offered whether that be childcare whether that be a flexible working arrangement there are so many things that so many companies are now offering because it's become part of the norm some companies are even offering egg freezing fertility treatments like IVF like so many women are struggling to get pregnant and that is an incredibly expensive cost Mm-hmm. Why not have your workplace cover it if they'll cover part of it? Great tips. Great tips. The
3: PPO thing, that's been on my mind. I was like, yep, yeah, noting for uh, the next few years. Yeah. Vivian, th- thank you so much for providing like such good tips for us. I feel like I'm learning a lot just through this conversation. I do want to pivot a little bit for the topic and kind of talk about you know how you're kind of growing this side hustle or like now you're building Rich BF- BFF and I know you are balancing a full-time job and... We know that from personal experience from three of us, we were working nine to five jobs while balancing the podcast. We know it's really difficult to do both. And, you know, like we mentioned earlier, your rich BFF literally went from like zero to hundred overnight. You know, what kept you going with rich BFF and, um, have you ever felt, did you ever feel burnout and are you still with your full-time job? Just want to learn a little bit more about how are you able to balance everything?
2: Yeah. So first and foremost, I left my full-time job back in March, end of March, um, Congrats. but I did do your rich BFF and my full-time job for a year and three months. Did wow. I experience burnout every single day? Deeply. I was deeply unwell. Um, I was working probably nine thirty to seven Monday through Friday at my day job. And then I would spend all of Saturday ideating and all of Sunday recording. And then I'd mm-hmm. probably have like a mental breakdown at the end of Saturday But the real reason why I really made the decision to quit my job was I was getting outreach for networks being like, we want you to start a podcast or we want you to write a book or we want you to be on this TV show. And I physically did not have the time to do any of that. And I felt like I was turning away once in a lifetime opportunities that people would, you know, give their left arm for because I just didn't have the bandwidth to do them. And Mm -hmm. it came to a point where I felt like, I'm only going to get this opportunity now. There's a very small window of opportunity. And I would hate in 30 years to look back and think, wow, I really, really wish I had tried that. And with my job, I was really fortunate. I had a wonderful manager, an amazing team. I was very well liked. And I felt like, worst case scenario, I try to take your rich BFF full time. I flame out in a year and I can always go back to doing that job because I still have all those skills. I have all those connections. And I was thinking like, you know, maybe even my old job would hire me back. Mm. So my thought was Mm. the risk of leaving was lower than the risk of not leaving.
1: Spoken like a true financial analyst.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I had to think about it. Cost benefit (laughs) analysis, you know.
1: So Vivian, it sounds like for you, it was a very organic thing, right? Like you're just the, mm-hmm. um, the opportunities, uh, were coming and you were, you just had limited time, which is something that we very much related to as well in, in our mm-hmm. process of thinking about how to go from or why and when it made sense to go full time. Um, so knowing that you did for year and a year and three months of double balancing, um, wh- where you said, you know, you were hitting like burnout multiple times how do you feel like (laughs) that experience though um of of that juggle and that balance how has that um, shaped the way you approach your business now and how you want to build your rich bff
2: yeah i think i want to build my business in a way that's not just building quickly but building for the long term Mm -hmm. i give myself weekends off I really, really want to build in a sustainable way, but also I want it to be holistic. I, my bread and butter is on digital and on social media. And that is always going to be my first love. But not everyone likes to listen to me talk very, very quickly in 60 seconds. So there will be a rollout of potentially, hopefully longer form content on YouTube, potentially you know, a show on Snapchat, something where people can watch for a little bit longer. In addition to that, there are people who don't want to watch me talk or listen to me, but they really like my content. I hope to have a book so that they can just read it. Mm. In addition to that, again, with the longer form content, you know, people have been asking me constantly about like a podcast, interviewing people from my past life, from finance. Like, what are the big tips that we can all learn? Um, There's a lot of interest there. And I think in addition to that, we also are really interested in potentially being on a TV screen all over America and on Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, a streamer that can really provide this so, so important financial literacy to a really broad mass audience. So we're really branching out in terms of media, but also I think the hope is that eventually your Rich BFF can also be a full company that provides a service that people can't access right now. If we walked into, you know, if most people walked into a financial advisor's office right now and said, hey, can you like manage my money? You'd be laughed out of the office because most financial advisors won't take you on unless you have half a million dollars in net worth. And even the 23-year-old kid who just got his licenses is going to want you to have a net worth of $100,000. I am, I am now rich. I don't really need a financial advisor now. I really could have used one when I was 22, moved to New York City, had like four cents to rub together and didn't know anything about anything. And I think that's something that's really missing from the current mm-hmm. market that I, I hope to fill that gap
0: i love the trajectory that you are painting for us for your company i think it is achievable just based on the credibility that you've built for yourself with your online presence i mean if you think about going to advisors a lot of times it's like, oh, cold call someone from a bank, or cold call someone mm-hmm. and say, like, I need some some financial advice, and you don't have any idea what their background is, what they're trying to get out of you, or are they trying to swindle you, like our Asian yeah. parents think they are, you know? So, you having built this base and this community is actually a really strong point for getting to a place where it is, like, a much larger company giving. I would say maybe it, starting off with, like, younger, younger people who are coming to you and, and wanting financial advice, and then that's spreading to just any Anyone who's wanting financial advice. This is like the the way, the next generation of how finance mm-hmm. advice should be given from, from someone like your rich BFF. So we heard you also signed with WME. That is amazing. That is huge. Thank you. I wonder, do they typically reach out to people doing your type of content or is this sort of like a new thing for them?
2: Yeah, I think this is very, very unchartered waters. There's transparently not that many finance creators, period, I think there's probably Mm -hmm. less than 100, period. And then if you take that number, 100, there's probably a 3 to 1 male-female ratio. So of the 25, Mm -hmm. there are probably only 10 diverse people of color who are women. Mm -hmm. And then of those 10, I would say there's probably only three or four Asian women. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, there's really not that many people in the space and there's very, very few people doing this. But I do think it's a space that's going to need to grow in the future if people are going to become better with their money. And I think our generation and people in today's society need this information just as much as they need the best lip tint recommendation or, Mm -hmm. you know, what hairstyle should I have? Because as fun as it is to watch those videos, like, don't get me wrong, I watch them. But (laughs) I think having creators who help make viewers' lives better is also really important.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious, how big is your team right now?
2: Yes. (laughs) I have a full, full service team right now. I have my agent team at WME. Uh, I'm managed at uncommon. Um, and I have an attorney and in addition to them, I am working with a freelance social media manager as well as a newsletter writer. So the team is large, but nobody else is like full-time, just your rich BFF with the exception of myself. Mm.
3: Wow. That is amazing. I think that's really cool that you're kind of building your empire and all began with that one, <laughs> one video. And like, I think like kind of to echo what Helen said, but I, I see the trajectory of your career and I just honestly, as someone that again, like fits under your audience, I would probably like be really in like, I'm really excited for your, like for your potential book or your podcast. I would like tune in. Cause I'm like, these are things women, my like 31 need help with. Cause I feel like, again, we weren't properly informed and You did bring up that you do have that reputation where we really trust you and you do feel like our friend. Like, great. Um, Vivian, I love how you mentioned earlier too. Like, I think what makes you and your content so special as an Asian American, there's a lot of relatability there for me personally. Um, And then within our culture, I don't know if you agree with this, but like, I think talking about money openly is kind of taboo. Like, for me, talking about money is something you kind of do privately, maybe on the gossip dinner table about someone's family, you know, being rich or whatever. Um, And maybe it's not really encouraged to talk about money openly in Asian culture. Like, how did you adopt this opposite approach of being Mm -hmm. very, like, open about money?
2: Yeah, I think it took some time. But Mm -hmm. the reason why I'm so open about money is because of another Asian American woman. Um, I joke about how my family taught me how to save. But the real person who taught me about money was my rich BFF and my first mentor and my manager at JP Morgan when I got there she was the first person who pulled me aside and was like, are you investing in your 401k? And I was like, my 401 what? Mm. And I, I wanted to learn from her for really, really shallow, selfish reasons at first. It was just because she like looked amazing and wore like a new Chanel bag or Gucci shoes to work every day. And I was like, she's so rich. I want to be so rich. Um, but over time, she was the only person that I felt comfortable and who would tell me Like, Mm. I asked her, I was like, do you think I should ask for more money at this job? And she's like, yes, you should be asking for more money every year. And I was like, oh, shoot. Like, I didn't get that email. Like, I didn't Mm. get the memo that we were supposed to be doing that. And because of her, I felt more and more confident talking about money. Mm. And Mm. the same questions that I asked her were the questions that my colleagues asked me when I left. So it really, really built in a natural way that... I became the person that they felt confident asking, am I making enough? How much money do you make? And I felt confident telling them those figures because we should be bringing each other up. Talking about money doesn't suddenly make the person who's making more make less, but it does help the person making less try to make more. And I really do think that the more we talk about money, the better off we'll be. Unfortunately, we are not all treated equal. And I hate to say that, but if I were to walk into a car dealership today by myself, I would get very, very different treatment than my fiance, who is a white man. Worse, if I was a black woman, I would probably be treated differently as well, likely worse. And if you know I was one half of an LGBTQ couple walking into a car dealership, I would probably get treated differently as well. Same thing happens when you go and get a mortgage. Unfortunately, these are realities. And if you are not talking to your friends about money, you're missing out and they're missing out. And it's really important if you truly want to be an ally, if you want to uplift your community, talk about money.
1: That is a great one line tip is is the importance of transparency and communication around something that even though we might have been raised to believe it's taboo, but to understand that in our society today, it is really a form of power um, and in fact, could be critically dangerous if you're not if you're not doing it. Um, but Vivian, you still like our listeners balance that, that, you know, multicultural background and you still, you know, have a relationship with your parents and you talk to them about kind of the work that you do, we assume. Um, yeah, we're wondering for, for, you know, Chinese parents who do kind of have that idea that, you know, you should be quiet when it comes to finances and it's taboo to talk about. How did you explain to them what you're doing with, um, your rich BFF? How did that conversation go?
2: So, I didn't tell my parents about your rich BFF until I was 8 months in. Wow. So like I think yeah. I had like probably almost like a million followers on TikTok, like I was monetizing, I was making money from this and I did not tell them about this little side hustle until I knew that I had a proof mm-hmm. point that I could point back to and be like, "Haha, this is not like an embarrassing social media thing that I you know, I'm doing like I'm making real money and it is contributing to my livelihood because you know, parents, they're always going to be like, what's this actually for? And when I actually left JP Morgan to go to Buzzfeed, my parents, especially in particular, me and my mom got into a blow up fight and didn't talk for like two or three months because their thought was, we've provided you the American dream. We paid, we paid, you know, multiple six figures for you to go to a school like the University of Chicago, known for its economics department. You're supposed to be like this smart girl. You're going to go like write qu- quizzes for a living now. That wasn't even what I was doing, but that's all I knew about BuzzFeed. And I didn't feel like I could share my Your Rich BFF journey until it had gotten out of the danger zone. And like, um, Helen, I-, I know you you have a baby. You know how you moms don't tell people about their pregnancy until after the first trimester, just at the risk Mm -hmm. of anything terrible happening, God forbid. I felt the same way about Your Rich BFF because it was my baby. And I don't know if you guys have heard, but Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, didn't tell anybody about Spanx until she was like a year in because she knew that if she did, people would be like shooting her idea down. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that I just couldn't have handled my parents being like, this is stupid, don't do this. I didn't share anything until I was ready. Great analogy, by the way, with the baby thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I see what you did there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think for me, I also did the same with my parents with Asian Boss Girl. I did not tell them until maybe two years in, maybe a year and a half in. And I remember Mel, your mom was like so supportive. And she was like the Asian boss mom, the ABM. And I'm just like, I don't think my mom knows about this. Mostly because I I didn't think she would understand what podcasting meant. It was still such a new industry. And because you don't want to instill fear in them that their daughter left a great job to, you know, start a job that might lead them to financial failure. So totally get where you're coming from there. As an Asian-American woman, do you think your cultural background and upbringing does in some way inform your relationship with money, even though we are of a very different generation?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, they say most of your money habits are instilled by age seven. So mm. regardless of if we want it to or not, the way we're brought up has a huge impact on our relationship with money, whether that be through money traumas or rather that be through, you know something that you've been taught as a young person, good or bad. Um, I would say in my current relationship with my fiance, I am definitely the saver and he is the spender. And there are things that I still do, even now that I have a seven figure net worth that he looks at and he's like, that is truly the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. So when we get takeout, I will save all the soy sauce packets and the napkins and the ketchups and like all the condiments. And he's like, ma'am, we have an entire drawer filled with soy sauce packets. You don't need any more of these. But I think like the way that I was brought up culturally is that like you really want to try and minimize your spending. Mm -hmm. I remember getting into the biggest fight with my mom because I had gone to the mall with a girlfriend and bought a pair of like, I don't even know, like $25, like $35 Abercrombie jeans. And I came home and my mom like ripped me a new one. And I still feel really weird spending a lot of money on clothes because of that now. And I think mm. it's something that I'm trying to work past. I think it's okay to treat yourself and buy something nice. But a lot of the really nice things that I own are oftentimes gifts because I'll say like, wow, I really love this. Not going to buy it. And then, mm. you know, my, my partner will be like, oh, well, like for your birthday, I got you this. And I'm like, you spent that much money. And that that's <laughs> not an appropriate response. The appropriate response is like, thank you. I appreciate this. Mm. But I think it has a lot to do with how I was raised. Going back to your comment about sauce packets. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Definitely something that I have. And when we moved from our condo to our home, we had this huge bag of sauce packets. And it was the worst feeling because that is one thing that you would toss in the context of your yeah. are moving homes it is one of those things you probably wouldn't bring into your new home so it felt like oh uh, it like crushed my heart to throw that out but um we try to use as much as we could after we order some food that day <laughs> <laughs> i like, gotta use up all of these sauce packets as much as we can and then throw it away
3: that's so funny speaking of sauce packets i have to add a little bit too i was just back <laughs> home with my parents and my mom to this day we don't buy like the heinz ketchup bottle because she just uses like the in and out ketchup packets and I'm yeah. pretty sure some of them are like from 2009. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, I was like, Bob, this sketch is a little dark. I don't think we could be using this anymore. Uh, uh, I wonder, I wonder
0: if that's an, is that an Asian thing though? You know? Yeah, it is. Probably. I think so. It, you think? Oh my gosh. Okay.
2: Also the, the trash bag full of other trash yeah, bags yeah. that are just grocery <laughs> yes. store bags. We all have that. That's a shared experience. Oh yes. I've been to like people's, like white people's homes. They don't have that. Actually, it's funny because
0: those trash bags transferred from the condo to the home.
1: Ah, so those made made it. it. They made the (laughs) trash. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Vivian, we actually like I know you answered a bunch of our questions, like between Janet, myself, and Helen. We actually did a call out on our social media because I think people were have were really excited and then have a lot of questions they wanted to ask you. So we're trying to make this as quick as possible. But we all these questions have they come from our Instagram. So if you can do the honors of answering these, we'd really appreciate it for our listeners. I think you mentioned this on your video, but someone asked, What are your tips on how to retire early without a six figure income?
2: Yeah. So First and foremost, these days you can't save your way to rich. You have to invest. So investing Mm -hmm. early and often. I also think that it's really important for the planning piece to calculate your FU number. Mm -hmm. So this is the equation. You take the amount of money you think you would need to live comfortably for one year. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then divide that number by 0.04. I know you're wondering where this is coming from. I'll get there. Basically, this will then back into the amount of money you will need to have invested mm. returning a very conservative 4% annually so that you can live off of the interest. Mm. Calculate that number and then make a plan to get there. Whether it's whether it be through investing, being more frugal, or making certain sacrifices or picking up side hustles, the faster you can get to that FU number, the faster you can straight up... Wipe your hands and walk away.
1: Mm, That's very good tangible advice.
2: Mm -hmm, Mel, I see your face and you're like,
0: I'm going to have to rewind this and listen to that again. (laughs) I am.
3: I don't know how much. I literally am just like, I don't, I can't calculate right now. I'll I'll, I'll wait a bit. (laughs) Okay. The next question we got
0: was, how to best prepare for taking care of your parents when they're older? Okay. that's, That's a great question. For example, if you don't want to put them into a senior home, what is a way to financially prepare yourself for taking care of your parents when they're older?
2: First and foremost... If I put my parents into a senior home, they when they pa- like when they eventually did pass, they would come back and <laughs> haunt my ass. So no, <laughs> we're not doing that with our Asian <laughs> parents, okay? I do think it's important to set boundaries. Um mm. my grandma currently lives with my aunt and my aunt and my mom try to split time of like where she stays to like take care of her. I think it's important to budget for an extra mouth to feed. But in addition to that, the largest cost is likely going to come from health. You're gonna wanna make sure that they're covered medically. Um, So it's important that if they come to live with you and they're not making any money, that you are maximizing things that you can do for them, whether that be put them on your health insurance plan, whether that be claim them as a dependent on your taxes, because that will benefit you uh, to make the burden of paying for their life a lot less harsh. Uh, But there's things that you can do to prepare for this. And then I think it's also important to figure out whether or not your parent is going to come live with you in home, or if you're going to also need to budget to pay for uh, a living situation close to you, whether that be renting an apartment or even, I know some, some really, really dutiful Asian children buy their parents a home. I know that's the dream dream, but I think for a lot of us, being realistic, like you're going to just want to think about like what it's going to cost to potentially have them rent or have them come live
1: with you. Mm, great advice. And our next question: um, How to prepare for marriage when your fiance has student debt in the six figure range, but you have no student debt? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> That's a deep breath for that one. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, a deep breath. So I do think that love don't cost a thing, but student debt interest does. So it's really important to make a plan. I don't think you should get married to someone who doesn't have a debt payoff plan. I think it's totally okay to get married to someone who has six figure debt. If they don't have a plan to pay that debt off or they don't have a plan to make sure that that debt doesn't interfere with your life goals and your family goals, that's a problem. Is that debt going to hold you back from buying a home that you want? Is that debt gonna hold you back from having children? Does your partner make enough to make more than the minimum payment. These are all questions that this couple should be having. But in addition to that, I just do think it's really, really important for any couple, whether or not you have assets, to have a prenup. Reason being, even if you don't get a prenup, you still get a prenup, the government just gets to write it. Mm. And I am so sorry, but there is nothing that I think the government does better than I can. Like me hiring a attorney my partner hiring an attorney, us coming to an agreement at a table, not where people are just getting shafted, but like truly we are 50, 50 partners. I think that only benefits a relationship. Like when people hear me say prenup, they think it's suddenly like when you get divorced, one person becomes a billionaire and the other person is destitute. That's not what happens. I, Me and my partner have every intention of going 50-50 into our relationship, even though I have more saved and invested right now. Reason being, he pays for a lot more of our daily life expenses, which is why all assets going into our marriage are going to be 50-50. All assets Mm -hmm. obtained after our marriage are going to go 50-50. And then the only things that wouldn't be that would potentially be my business that I own because if we, our marriage were to unfortunately dissolve, I wouldn't want to feel like I had a business partner who had a say in my business. Mm. So again, I think it's really, really normal to talk about a prenup, especially if your partner has six-figure debt.
1: Mm. Great tips. Mm. Thank you for that transparency. Yeah.
3: I feel like prenups are so taboo too. I'm just like, no, It's I think it's also just protecting yourself too and your business and your assets. Um, so I love that you're giving that advice. The next question for me is, how much money would a millennial need to retire? Is two million dollars still the rule of
2: thumb? That's I didn't ask that. Someone else said <laughs> <laughs> there is no correct answer to this. Mm. This is why calculating your own fu number is so important. Because what does retire mean for you? Are you mm. trying to live in an airstream and back pre- backpack across the U.S. and like visit national parks? Because that looks very very different than. Owning three homes and retiring to the beaches of the south of France and paying for all of your kids to go to college in full. That is a very, very different number. Mm. It's also a very different number if you plan to retire to a state that has no state income taxes. its It just looks different for everybody. So you have to calculate your own FU number. I think it's really helpful to back into what you would need for one year mm. and then back into back into your total number. Got it. Cool.
3: Great, great
2: advice. So it's the same as the how much would you need to live comfortably for
0: one year divided by 0.04. Yes. In case you forgot that <laughs> equation. Yes. Okay. So the next question uh, I'm going to ask my, from my own curiosity, Vivian, what is your personal financial dream? What is your, is it the white picket fence house with kids and the golden retriever? Or what is your dream for your future? And what are your financial goals to get there?
2: Yeah. Uh, That is a totally reasonable question. Uh, My ultimate financial goal is to never have to work ever again. Let me caveat that with, I don't think I'm going to stop working. Hmm. I am probably hoping to do paid work, work where I make a lot of money for the next decade. And then, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and help people. I'm going to go run a nonprofit. I'm going to go sit on the board of a, of a charity i want to do something with my time i want to feel useful i want to feel lively and i want to keep my brain at work because i don't think it'd be very fun to sit for the last 40 years of my life next to a pool it might be fun for like three weeks like really fun and i totally intend to do that for some time but people talk about financial freedom like it's this like and i walk away forever like that's not financial freedom for everybody for me is I never want to have to work again, but I still want to be able to. In addition to that, I think I want to be able to provide fully for my kid, my kids, whatever I want to do, where whatever school they want to go to, if they want to get a master's degree, if they want to go to law school, if they want to go to medical school. I don't want them to ever feel like their education is limited by their finances. I want them to be able to take all the classes that they want. I want them to go to summer camps that they that may be expensive, whether that be like horseback riding or a str- like astronomy camp or do you have to like buy them a telescope? Like I want to give my kid the experiences that my parents were able to give me, but like tenfold. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Education is really, really valuable to me. And the cost of a college education by the time that my kids are going to have to go is going to be about a million dollars a pop, which is deeply alarming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I want to be able to provide that for them. And that's mm-hmm. not going to be cheap. I also want to feel like I can vacation anytime I want. And I'm not talking like staying at the St. Regis and the Maldives for 365 days and like in a full year. Like I'm just talking about like, there is not a single place that I want to travel to that I can't afford to go mm. and do well. I think these are all things that I can realistically achieve. And I'm not someone who wants to pass away with a zillion dollars. Like, yes, I want to be able to pass down a really, really nice amount of money to my children, but I think for me, the plan is to work really, really hard for the next decade and then reassess when I'm close to 40 and potentially downshift in my career so that I can do more things that are super, super
1: fulfilling and helpful to society. Hmm. Hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your future plans. Yeah. But let's let's dial it back now. Looking at the next year for the rest of 2022. (laughs) Those are grand plans and I love hearing about it. But um, Mm -hmm. in your true nature of being able to break things down into tangible, achievable goals, what are you most excited about um, professionally and personally in for the remainder of this year for 2022?
2: I'm most excited about being able to give my full attention to your rich BFF. Mm. I quit my job in March. So I've only been doing this full time for about four months. And Mm. I think it's going to be so powerful for me to have six full months of uninterrupted runway. Hopefully my podcast sells, hopefully someone buys the book. I hope to have a million followers on Instagram by the end of the year, two million on TikTok and grow out the YouTube. And truly I think the name of the game for the back half of the year for me is just growth and solidifying additional lines of businesses so that my revenue is as diversified as possible because I don't like to rely on any one revenue stream
3: that is a great great tangible goal for the rest of the year
2: (laughs) Um, that's
3: amazing and so for people who want to you know follow your growth trajectory where can our listeners find and follow
2: you you can find me as your rich BFF on all social media. Very literally, I'm on every platform. Please, please, please find me. Uh, and I will be providing more p- personal finance and financial literacy content.
0: Amazing. This is an incredible interview. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Vivian. You gave us so much tangible advice to take away. And I'm going to be rewinding back and listening to this episode again. But thank you so much for your time and for being here. And we're so excited for the rest of your year in the rest of your life.
3: Now know your <laughs> <goals. I know. laughs> if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonated with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. And if you'd like
0: to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment
1: called Dairy ABG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is at Asian Boss Girl. If you'd like to send a shout out to a friend, check out our link tree and our link in bio on our Instagram and click on shout outs. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all of her magic on our episodes, including this one.
0: And with that, we will catch you all on the next episode.
1: Bye!